Hello and welcome to Is Me in Conversation, a podcast all about advice for leaders of independent businesses. My name is Ed, and I'll be asking our guests for the best pieces of advice that they've ever received, as well as the worst. They will also, of course, be sharing practical and implementable tips and advice for business leaders on all kinds of subjects. So, on this episode, we have Jerry Bridge Butler. Jerry is a dual qualified patent attorney and trademark attorney at Baron Warren Redfern. I'll leave it to Jerry to explain exactly what that means and what it entails because I'm in the dark too. So with that said, hello Jerry. Jerry, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well my name is Jerry. I'm an intellectual property lawyer. So uh, within that I'm a chartered patent attorney and a chartered trademark attorney. What I do is I help people to or businesses to protect the valuable intellectual property that they have associated with what they're doing. And on the flip side, also help them to deal with situations where they're being copied and it's causing them problems. So it's a very interesting and varied job that I have dealing with all kinds of different things and different issues that people have. But fundamentally, most of the work is patent drafting and obtaining patents for people and filing trademark applications and and managing people's portfolio of registrations. Thank you very much. Now, you touched on the variety that your job involves there. Is that your favourite part of what you do? If not, what is your favourite thing about your job? I do enjoy the variety a lot. Yeah, if you were to ask me what my favourite thing about the job was, I probably would say that. My partnership where I work happens to have a very large number of smaller clients rather than a small number of larger clients. So I don't get bogged down doing the same things all the time. And because I'm a so-called dual qualified attorney, both patents and trademarks, which is somebody usually is a patent attorney or a trademark attorney. But because I do both, I get roped into helping most of the startup companies that we represent. So uh, individual people or startup companies who just got investment, that kind of thing. And if you're dealing with that kind of work, then it just is very, very varied because whatever they're doing might be something new. It might be something different. And the situations they find themselves in are very different and very interesting. Um, and I guess also because I do both sides of IP, I could find myself spending three days drafting a patent on a paint additive, or I could spend those three days dealing with 25 different trademark disputes. Let's touch briefly on those two disciplines, patents, trademarks. Can you briefly outline what the differences are between patents, trademarks, and then intellectual property more broadly? The term intellectual property just refers to essentially anything which has value, which is intangible. Uh, you can't hold it in your hand. So it's property in the sense that you can own it. So the different elements of IP, they're basically four different categories. There's patents, trademarks, designs, and copyright, and they all protect different things. So they're all exclusive of one another. A patent protects an invention. So an invention is not a product specifically, but just an idea. So patents are very powerful and they're very popular things to get, because if you can get a patent for just an idea, a particular set of technical features combined to make a particular thing, then you have an awful lot of power. You can use that to stop other people using that idea. So if you invest time and effort into developing new technology and you've invented something new and you want to be able to be the only people to use that and to have a monopoly right, then you can obtain a patent and that will give you the monopoly right to use that invention yourself to the exclusion of everybody else. And the whole point of the patent system really is to reward the innovation. So if you spend time and effort or you invest money in developing new inventions, you can get a patent and then you can recoup your costs. So that, that's that's what's actually going on with, with, with patents. Trademarks are completely different. A trademark is basically any sign uh, which can act as a designator of origin. So any business that's selling anything, 
they're using trademarks to identify the fact that those goods or those services are emanating from them. So our trademark clients uh, spread across the, the entire spectrum of all business because everyone who's in business is using trademarks. Just briefly, uh, designs are another thing you can apply for a registered design that basically protects the outward appearance of a product. Unlike a patent, it doesn't protect how something works. It simply protects what something looks like. Uh, the final branch is copyright. That basically relates to creative industries. It's an automatic right, so you don't actually have to do anything to benefit from it. You automatically get this protection. But it protects works of art, so literary, musical, dramatic, and visually artistic works. Presumably, organisations who have technical innovation and R&D at their heart are going to be considering patents and design anyway. But what are the potential consequences for a business that doesn't consider IP? Because you've said that every business should be considering it. What are the potential negative consequences if you don't? Anyone who's in business who's doing anything should be playing the IP game to some extent. It's not something you can really ignore. Really, this is just about risk. If you don't consider IP at all, then you're actually taking a bit of a risk with your business. You're risking being copied by other people freely, which could harm you. But perhaps more importantly, if you don't engage at all, then you're running a massive risk that you could step on someone else's toes. So there's a huge landscape out there of registered intellectual property rights belonging to other people. Now, on a very simple level, you can talk about trademarks here. You can say, well, you could start a business and you could decide that you're going to call the business a particular name. You then start trading, you start selling goods, and you suddenly receive a legal letter, which is very aggressive, from uh, a legal representative of a trademark owner saying, you're infringing my client's trademark rights. You need to stop immediately and pay us damages and pay our legal costs and destroy all your products. And that's quite shocking when people receive those letters. The reason that that happens to them is because they didn't bother to check. They didn't bother to engage at all. Now, if you go down the route of saying, right, I'm going to start this new company and I'm going to have this new brand name and you want to protect it. So you come to a trademark attorney and you say, right, we want to go through the process of getting a trademark registration. That process itself inevitably involves checking to see what else is already out there. But I think the message here is that just because you're not a pharmaceutical company, you're not an aeronautical company, you're just, uh, you know, even someone as simple as, I don't know, someone sets up a pop-up coffee shop. They might think, oh, I don't need to get involved with this. But you actually do, because you can, you can get yourself into trouble quite quickly. I mean, not protecting your trademark as well is also a real problem, because you're not providing yourself with the insurance that you need to be able to prevent people copying you if that were to occur. But you're also not adding the value to your business. So regardless of the size of the business, everybody thinks from time to time about exit strategies and attracting investment. Nobody's going to buy your company or invest in it if you haven't secured the IP that you should have secured that's available to you that's associated with the business that you're operating. Okay, so this podcast is all about advice. We ask all our guests to tell us a couple of great pieces of advice they've received over their careers and one terrible one. We'll come to that a little bit later on. But Jerry, can you tell us the first piece of what you consider to be great advice? Um, it's not so much a specific piece of advice anyone ever gave me, but during the course of my career, I've worked with lots of different attorneys in different countries and seen how they operate and I've taken advice from them doing different things. But one thing that really springs to mind is the process of, if you're involved in an inter-parties dispute, that basically means you're, you're fighting somebody else legally. One of the things that really, really helps in your decision-making process and working out what you're going to do is to profile your opponent. 
And by that, I mean, actually stop to consider who they are, what their motivation is, anything you can find out about them, where they live, you know, how old they are, you know, what they do, all that kind of stuff, because it can so help you to decide what's the best approach. Because when any inter-party dispute, it's not just about fighting each other. It's about getting what you want out of it. And the best way to get what you want out of it is to work out the right actions to take vis-a-vis the person you're dealing with. And this came up with a a case I was dealing with uh, in the US 15 years ago or more, where we've got a big client, a UK client who exports products all over the world. They've got a very famous trademark. And someone in California um, had come up with a sort of novelty product that was somewhat associated with my client's business. And they were using the exact same name as us. So it was a bit of a problem. And this person had put this product on Kickstarter and had managed to raise a large amount of money, a couple million dollars, to make this product. So we sent the usual legal letter and this guy just, you know, reacted very aggressively and said, no, you can't do anything to me. Ha ha ha. So dealing with the US lawyer, he basically said, look, let's just sit down and have a think about who this guy is. He's a young man from California and using a very broad brush, my US attorney said, look, he's going to be very relaxed kind of guy. He's from California. He's not going to want any hassle in his life. He's, he, he doesn't have any real concept of quite where he's at and how much money he's got and the responsibilities he has. I'll tell you what I'll do. Why don't I just ring him up a few times and just hassle him a little bit? And I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting approach. Nothing to lose. We'll give it a try. So my US attorney did that. And using his profiling of that person, he knew exactly what kind of buttons to push. And it was enough to get this guy to just come around to our way of thinking and to say, okay, fine, I get it. I get where you're coming from. I, you know, I don't want all this hassle with you guys. And I'll change it to something else. So rather than spending potentially tens of thousands of dollars or more on a US litigation, which we could have got dragged into, just because we profiled this guy and we thought about it and we thought he's not a business person, it it gave us that opportunity to think about how to react. And I've taken that forward into many other inter-parties disputes I've had to deal with, where when I've got the client in front of me, the first thing I'll say is, let's work out who this guy is. And if you can predict what the other person's going to do in an inter-parties dispute, it makes your life so much easier. I like it. It obviously has wider implications than just the law. It's that kind of know your enemy concept, the art of war, bringing that to the business table. I like it a lot. Right, back to patents. What is the process for getting a patent? Again, broad view for people that don't understand the process. A patent application is incredibly complex. And the reason it's complex is because patent applications are rigorously examined to ensure that they're only granted for inventions which deserve them. The threshold is basically that the invention has to be new and inventive. To determine whether something's new, what happens is the patent examiner will carry out a search of what we refer to as the prior art, which basically means everything that's been thought of before. But what he'll do is he'll look through earlier file patent applications, of which there may be many hundreds. And if he can find exactly the same thing having been done before, then he'll say, it's not new, you can't have a patent for that. Where it gets really complicated is this question of whether it's inventive or not. And that's really, uh, you can flip it over and say, well, is your invention an obvious thing to do based on what the prior art teaches us to do, or does it involve an inventive step? So that's at the heart of what a patent application process is, and it's why it's expensive and why it takes a long time. But basically, uh, from the start, you would instruct an attorney such as myself who would then draft the patent application, which is a document which explains in great detail what the invention is and sets out what the scope of protection is that you're asking for. So that's the start. You file that, and the process involves the examiner then carrying out his search and examination and arguing with you over what he's going to give you. Part of the reason patent applications are complicated is because you don't necessarily know 
at the start what the invention is that you're going to be able to get a patent for. So you start off by describing the invention very broadly and saying, I want a patent for this. But then you also say, well, if I can't have that, then maybe I can have a patent for something a bit more specific, this feature over here or that feature over there and so on and so forth. If you file a patent application and it gets accepted straight away, you've probably done it wrong because you probably could have got more. You could have got a broader scope of protection. So it's always a question of starting broad and then chipping it away only as much as is necessary to end up with the scope of protection that was actually available in the circumstances. So we refer to that as the prosecution of the application. So that can take quite a long time. So you you file the application, it then gets prosecuted. You then reach a point where the examiner and you agree, and he says, right, I'll grant you that. And then you you obtain your patent. Uh, It can last up to a maximum of 20 years, but you have to pay a renewal fee on it every year to keep it alive. Is there an increased complexity in the process as there is an increased complexity in our own technology as a society? The answer to that question is weirdly no. The more simplex something is, and by which I mean it's simply made up of a small number of technical features, the harder it is to get a patent for it. The more complex something is, the easier it is. Okay, and you and you touched on the fact that a patent can help stimulate innovation. Now, that seems kind of counterintuitive. So can you give us a bit more detail on that? How does that work? Well, you have to kind of go back to the whole principle behind it in the first place. So you've got to go back sort of more than 100 years to work out, well, why did we start doing this? The reason is, if a company spends a lot of money and puts a lot of effort into developing new products, they're only going to do that if they think they're going to get a return for that. You know, they're actually going to be able to sell these products. And if you had a situation where anyone was free to copy anybody else, then all you have is people saying, well, I'm not going to waste time and money and effort developing a new product because as soon as I do, then my rival down the road is just going to make exactly the same thing and it's not going to be worth it. So the idea is to give people these monopoly rights. And as I said before, giving people a monopoly right is quite a serious thing. But the idea, as I said, is to, is to reward the innovation and then to stimulate people to keep doing it. The easiest example to point to is pharmaceuticals, which people always talk about. Because the costs involved in developing a new drug are enormous. But the drug that's actually developed at the end of the day might be incredibly easy to copy. It might be just you know a, a compound or a formula of different things. So if you said uh, to pharmaceutical companies, well, and we're just going to let anybody copy these things as soon as you've made them, then they wouldn't bother making them. Um, so it, the benefit is for society, really, that we're getting new drugs developed for us. And then the pharmaceutical company that developed it then gets the right to generate a lot of money by selling those products exclusively itself. That's the idea. Tell, tell me about patent box. It's something that you mentioned before we started recording. And I, what is it? What does it mean? Patent Box is a tax relief scheme that's run by the UK government, and it is designed, broadly speaking, to stimulate innovation by getting people to invest in new inventions that they then get patents for. The actual relief is that it halves the corporate tax that you pay on profits that you accrue through the sale of the goods that are patented. The reason why it's quite a good system is that it doesn't differentiate between how good the patent is or how bad it is or how broad it is or how narrow it is. So let's take an example. I've got a client that sells tables and they're very simple, collapsible tables, but they do have patent rights associated with the hinges that they're using. Now, what that means is that every single table that they sell with that particular hinge associated with it, they're halving their corporate tax that they're paying. And if you're selling a lot of products 
then that can be a very significant saving. The idea is that if you provide this tax relief, then that will put a fire under the whole innovation system and the patenting system and get the UK moving. But this patent box system could be manipulated, can't it? You mentioned nappies. Uh, sorry, you're conflating two different things. Oh, there. sorry. Um, <laughs> what that's all about is what we might refer to as patent strategy. So if you are using the patent system in the most straightforward manner, then you invent something and you say, oh, I would like to get a patent for that. So you go and get the patent, you get the rights and, you know, happy days. What patent strategy is about is about making sure that you continue to have those patent rights in place after the point at which your original patent might have run out or developing products in such a way that you can get patents for them, even though you're not actually improving the product. So the example in question related to a famous brand of nappies, where they had a patent associated with the nappy that they were selling, and they liked the fact they had the patent, they had the power, they had the value associated with the business and so forth. So then the patent runs out after 20 years, and they think, well, we don't want to be copied, and we want to move to a position where, again, we have this exclusive right. So the hypocritical story is that they redeveloped the product and designed it in such a way that they knew they could get a patent, but they weren't actually designing it to make it necessarily better. They just put new features in it, but it was something new and it was something inventive. So they went back and they got patents for that. So what what we're talking about here is actually designing something with the patent system in mind. Um, Right, let's go back to that notion of advice. Can you please give us the second piece of great advice that you've received in your career, in your personal life, that you carry with you? Well, I don't remember anyone specifically advising me to do this, but I think it's great advice anyway, so perhaps I can feed it out to you that way. But it's to volunteer. And what I mean specifically is to get engaged with your own industry, whatever industry you happen to be in. Whatever field you you work in, there will be an association, an institute, whatever it is. So in my instance, it would be the Charleston Institute of Patent Attorneys or Charleston Institute of Trademark Attorneys. I've volunteered for them for a very long time, doing different things, chairing committees and just getting involved in stuff. And ostensibly, you're doing it to help other people. But my experience of doing it is that it's incredibly personally rewarding. Sometimes I find myself perhaps volunteering for too many things and then I'll come into my office one day and suddenly realize I've got to spend two hours in a webinar with somebody and I think, oh no, why did I agree to do that? But then I do it and the time I spend with those people and the engagement I have with those people really makes me happy. And at the, I find at the end of the working day, I'm a much happier person for having done it. And it's opened so many doors for me. And even as simple stuff like, you know, helping to organize a Christmas lunch and stuff like that. Yeah, appearing on a podcast. Doing podcasts, exactly. (laughs) And I always find it fascinating that I'm obviously in a field where I have my own competitors. There are lots of law firms out there that do what we do. We all compete with each other. But when you actually stop and and spend time with those people, they're just like you. um, And they're brilliant to spend time with. And you you can become very good friends with them, even though you're actually competing with them. It doesn't have to be tooth and nail all the time. Fantastic. So a lot of businesses will have the notion of either A, raising investment, or B, exiting at some point in time when it comes to their business. Why is IP advice especially important in those scenarios? Well, it's really about recognising the intellectual property that's actually there and then taking the necessary steps to protect it. And if you have obtained registered IP in the form of patents, uh, registered trademarks, registered designs, they all essentially add value 
to your business. They're all part of what somebody would be either investing in or actually buying. If you don't have those things in place, then what tends to happen is that uh, nobody comes along and just buys a company. They say, oh, I'm interested in buying that company. Let's, let's sit down and work out some terms and then we'll do our due diligence. And then they'll set their lawyers on you and the lawyers will come over and go over your business with a fine tooth comb and make sure everything that you've said is correct. One of the primary things they're looking for is how you've protected your intellectual property because that has got to do with the value of your business going forwards. If you've not protected inventions you should have protected or you haven't got trademark registrations in place in all the territories that you're operating in, that just creates a massive problem. And they're just going to say, well, your company is not the value you said it was because we don't actually have the right to stop other people using this brand, for example, in this territory that you're operating in. But it's all about valuing what the business actually is. And it's a sort of codified way of doing it. Think about Instagram. Instagram was bought by Facebook for a billion dollars, which actually seems like it was quite cheap, actually. <laughs> Although at the time it was considered outrageous because uh, Instagram was so small. But what were they actually buying? They weren't buying the 13 members of staff in the office. They were buying the trade bots. Because the very next day they carried on operating Instagram. If they had to call it something else, then it would have had zero value. The value is all associated with that brand name. And all the people coming back the very next day and every day thereafter to go back to that app because they are aware that Instagram is Instagram because it's called Instagram. So the value of the trademark in that instance was probably most of the billion dollars that they spent. I mean, maybe there might have been something to do with the you know, background computer systems, but fundamentally, Instagram is not something that's uh, protected with patents. Anybody can do exactly what Instagram does. and You can compete with them on that level, but you're not going to get anywhere because you don't have that trademark. And it's that trademark that was just so incredibly valuable in that instance. And that's what it's all about. So yeah, if you're, if you're thinking about exiting, that's all about selling your business. So you want to have as much value as possible. So engaging with the IP system, I mean, if you're if you haven't engaged at all and then you're thinking of selling your business and you come to an attorney and say, well, what am I going to do? Not a great deal you might be able to do at that point. So it's more of a long-term view. But all the other benefits associated with protecting your intellectual property, being able to stop people copying your inventions, being able to stop people copying your name, all that sort of stuff. You want to have that in place anyway for all the main reasons. But by virtue of having all that stuff in place, you've also engaged with the system and added that important value to your business and made it an attractive business for someone to either buy or invest in. I mean, if you ever watch Dragon's Den, you'll see it. The dragons always ask the same thing. Have you got the IP? Because if you don't, I'm not interested in you because you don't have the exclusive right to do this. And the perception is that if you can be copied, you probably will be. If, if you become successful, you will definitely be copied and you will just lose value. You won't sell as many products. But if you think about your own business and the value associated with your own business, then this is absolutely key to take the time to think about it and then perhaps go and talk to someone about it and get these things in place that they ought to have. Okay, so clearly there are plenty of businesses who would be helped by coming and seeking out advice by uh, an attorney such as yourself. Are SME owners more reticent to approach lawyers than they should be? Is there a sense of anxiety around that issue, do you think? I think that probably exists to some extent because one thinks about the reputation that lawyers might have, generally speaking. An SME might think, well, I don't really want to bother engaging, you know, expensive lawyers because the experiences that I might have heard of are negative. It could be very expensive. They could charge me for every second they talk to me, that sort of thing. But my, my own personal experience is, is perhaps the opposite a little bit. A lot of the people that I deal with because they're SMEs are often relatively young um, because they're starting out with something new. And I find that the younger generation is not afraid at all. In fact, they're quite pushy. 
and they know what they want. In some ways, you could say that's maybe a lesson for the older generation who, who aren't so pushy. They will come to me and they will want answers quickly. They want it to be nice and clear. They want to know the pricing. They want it to be cheap. And they'll push for these things. And I don't mind that at all. I don't mind engaging with somebody who's, who is actively engaged in the process and wants to sort things out. So I haven't experienced it too much. One final question then, if you don't mind, back to that notion of advice. We've heard two excellent pieces of advice. So to flip it slightly, have you any experience with advice, bad advice, advice that you don't want to follow? When I was thinking about this before the podcast, I was wondering about what this advice was supposed to be, whether it was something personal, like uh, someone once said to me, oh, you should watch Mamma Mia. It's a great movie. And that turned out to be awful advice. Um, but I think I'm not sure that's the kind of thing you're talking about. But I struggled to think of a particular piece of advice that I had been given in relation to my career or in relation to intellectual property, which uh, I acted upon. And then it turned out to be a total disaster. So I think in answering this question, it occurred to me that perhaps some of the worst advice I've ever heard has come from the voices inside my own head. And they usually come when things are difficult, when times are tough, or when you're involved in something and you're thinking, do I really want to be doing this? This is very, very difficult. Perhaps there's something else I should do. Perhaps I should quit doing this and try something else. I think my life experience has been that that's some of the worst advice you can get because it's coming from you. Um, and it's very easy to act upon. I found in my life that if you set your mind to something and you keep going and you carry on and you ignore those voices in your head telling you it's difficult, then you will succeed. If you are the sort of person who just quits at the first sign of trouble, then you're never going to achieve anything. And sometimes things in life are particularly difficult, whether it's for me qualifying to do what I do or whether it's for our clients getting involved in a very complex case that you know, requires a lot of their attention and a lot, of, a lot of their effort. If you keep going, you'll get there. If you keep your eyes on the prize and, and focus on what the end result is, you're much more likely to achieve that than not. So I think the bad advice I was going to refer to was, if you ever say to yourself, you know, this is too much for me, I don't want to do it. You should really think again whenever you say that to yourself and say, can I keep going with this? Because if I keep going, I'll probably get what I want. That's fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Jerry. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed to Jerry, and thank you all for listening. If you found this advice useful and you'd like access to other experts covering all aspects of running a business, subscribe to the podcast, naturally, but also head to ismeandco.com where you will find Jerry, as well as all my other guests on this podcast, and all kinds of advice for business leaders. Thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>